All right, good morning. This morning we are continuing our series on the life of Paul. So this is now Life of Paul Part 8. And we are finally getting to the part where he's named Paul. Are you excited about that? Yeah, for those of you who are, um, who've been with us the past seven weeks, has it been kind of surprising how, like when you heard that we were doing a series on the life of Paul, I'm assuming you did not assume this. I don't know that I originally thought it either that it would, there would be so many weeks of him being named Saul. Wasn't it surprising how long he went by Saul? So we're finally getting to the point where somebody calls him Paul um, today. The story that we're going to learn today is an interesting one. It is um, found in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. It's got some magic in it, if you will. Um, and this story is its own, like, this, it's, it's one of the stories of the things that happened in his life. But it also plays a role in the larger story of his whole life, and that is this story is a turning point. This story that we're about to learn is the place where Paul transitions from being a pastor to being a traveling missionary. So we're going to see that change happen today. So Acts chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read to you the passage first. It's just 12 verses long, not much. So I'm going to read you the 12 verses, and then after I read it through, we'll go back and we'll go like one or two verses at a time and explain the whole thing. So here we go. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then after they fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they came down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear God's message. But Elamis, the sorcerer, this is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, You son of the devil! Full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Suddenly, a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, seeing what happened, believed and was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So that's our passage this morning. And so we'll start at the beginning and take it verse by verse. And I'm mostly going to skip the very first verse because the first verse of the chapter we've already covered. It says that the church of Antioch had prophets and teachers and it gives us five of their names. And if you were here a few weeks ago, remember when we talked about Saul ministering in Antioch? We actually already covered this list. We talked about the fact that there were multiple um, teachers there and that they came from different places. Remember we said this was the most ethnically diverse, culturally diverse church at the time, that these people were from different places and from different backgrounds. So we've already covered this verse, so I'm just going to jump straight to verse number two now. It says, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called to them, um, them to. 
So it says they were ministering to the Lord. Don't know exactly what that means. It can also be translated worshiping the Lord. I'm assuming that they were doing something like praying or maybe singing songs to God or singing psalms to God. They were also fasting, but that's more of what they weren't doing, right? They were not eating. So this was an occasion where they were taking something very seriously, um, worshiping God intensely or, or seeking his will about something. So they were specifically not eating and they were worshiping the Lord in some way, calling out to him, praying to him. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I've called them to. The Holy Spirit said it. Huh. What does that, that mean? Like, how did the Holy Spirit say that? Was there a voice from the sky? Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Could have been. I think there are times where God speaks from the sky in the Bible. Um, could it be that one of the prophets stood up and gave this as a prophecy? Right? Because the verse just before this said there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. Could one of the prophets stood up and said, The Lord just told me to tell you that he says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Could be that that happens in the Bible as well, where a prophet comes up and gives a, gives a prophecy. Could it be that they were all praying and they all came to the same exact conclusion at the same time with the same words and they all realized God confirmed it among all of them? Sure. I don't know what medium you know, by which... The Holy Spirit did this. All I know is the way that Luke tells the story, it was obvious to the group of people there that God said these words, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. So the next verse says, then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Now they'd already been fasting. I'm assuming that means they fasted more. And I assume they'd already been praying if they had been worshiping the Lord and communicating with him and ministering to him. But it looks like maybe they prayed more. And then they laid their hands on them. And sent them off. And laid their hands on them is something that we do here whenever we have, like, uh, with Royal Family Kids Camp in the summer, we used to do it two different times. And those of you who have been attending church here for years, do you remember when we have everybody all come up to the front and we lay hands on them? And we do this similar to the same reason that they did it here, that we lay hands on the people that are going to go serve at Royal Family Kids Camp or they're going to serve at track. And it's our way of saying, like, we support you, we're behind you, we believe God wants you to do this. So we, we send you out saying, yes. Go serve the Lord this way. And that's what I think is happening here. And we see examples of this in, um, in both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, I believe there are passages where the people lay their hands on the priests in order to set the priests apart for the work of God there in Israel. In the New Testament, there are times where they laid hands on people who were becoming a, like a pastor or an overseer or an elder or something like that, a church leader, and they were appointing them to that duty, saying they were set apart for that, that cause. And so that's what's happening here. They're saying, like, we agree with the Holy Spirit. You should go out and do what he said. We send you out. And so, verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they came down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So we've got some geography going on here, so we're going to need a map. Okay, so Antioch is where they live, right? That's where Saul and Barnabas are ministering. So then they go to Seleucia, which was a nearby town. They went to Seleucia not to go to Seleucia. They went there to get on a boat in order to travel, just like sometimes you drive down to Orlando to get on a plane, right? They go to Seleucia because they want to get on a ship because ultimately their goal is to get to Cyprus, which is this island out here in the middle of the Mediterranean. So Cyprus was an island out there. Um, it's, it was an island. It still is an island. It is still in the Mediterranean right there. Um, there are a million people living on it, like right now as I preach. And so they traveled from Seleucia over to Cyprus. And then the next verse says, verse 5, arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. 
So Salamis would be this city right here that's on like the far eastern um, side of the island or the right side of the island if you're not good with directions. Okay, So it makes sense why they went there when you look at it. They went to the closest port town and then they went probably to the next closest port town. Like they're just trying, it wouldn't make sense to sail all the way around here. They went to the next closest place, the east side of the island since they came from the west. And so they went there and it says once they got there, they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. Now this is, um, I think it's helpful for you to know this. You'll see it as we continue on in this series. And, and if you continue to read through the book of Acts, this is going to be their normal pattern for the rest of the story that when Saul, Paul goes and ministers somewhere, this is what they do. They show up somewhere and they proclaim God's message in the Jewish synagogues first. Okay? They always proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people first. In every single city they go to, and I think the only exceptions are just cities where there wasn't a big Jewish presence, but if there was a Jewish presence in a city and they had a synagogue, that was the model they followed. They always went to the synagogue first. They always proclaimed the Messiah to the people who believed there was a Messiah coming first. Like the group of people who believe there's a Messiah that, that is sent to save us, they would go to those people and they would say, he showed up. He came. His name is Jesus. And then they would fill in the information that they did not know. Like he died on the cross for our sins and he said this and he taught this and he rose again and this is what he promised us. And this is why we need to believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And so they would explain it to those people. Then after that, they would then share with the Gentiles. In some cases, they would share with the Gentiles once the Jews had rejected them or, or had, they had heard as much as they wanted to hear. And then they would go and share with the Gentiles next. So this is their total normal pattern. They proclaim Jesus' message in the Jewish synagogues. And then this is interesting. It says they also had John as their assistant. So there's an assistant missionary on this trip. His name's John. Who is he? Who's John? Anybody know? He's the guy that I last week referred to as Mark. Okay? And for those of you that were here last week, do you remember how I said when they were in Jerusalem... There was a guy who lived in Jerusalem named Mark, and that guy traveled with Saul and Barnabas up to Antioch with them. Okay? This is the same guy, but this time he's called John. Well, why in the world is he called John? Well, because he had two names. His name was John, but he was also called Mark. In fact, I have a chart here to help you, because you might go, this is so confusing if people have two names. Yeah, it is. Let me explain it. So sometimes we call him John Mark. In the book of Acts, there are three times where he is referred to by both names. Okay? Acts 12.12, 12, Acts 12.25, and Acts 15.37. Both names are in the same verse. It's usually something like... When they talk about him, they say, John, who is called Mark, which is sort of weird, because if he's called Mark, you'd just call him Mark, right? But they call him John, who is called Mark, three times. But then there are a couple occasions where they just call him John with no Mark, okay? One of the places is the, what the passage we're learning right now, Acts chapter 13, verse 5. And another one of the occasions is Acts 13, 13, which will be the text that we get to next week, Lord willing. So in those cases, we just have John, no Mark. But it's obvious that John, in those verses, is the same guy that was John called Mark just a little bit earlier. Then sometimes he's just called Mark, no John, okay? In Acts chapter 15, verse 39, he's just referred to as Mark. Also in Paul's letter, he's called Mark. So we've got Mark, who's the same as John Mark, and we've got John, who's the same as John Mark, and we see that he's different, called different things at different points. At which point you might go like, eh, why has the Bible got to be so confusing? Like, why can't they just pick a name and stick with it? The guy had a name. Why didn't they just call him one name? Why are they going to have multiple names? Bible's so confusing. I knew it's going to be hard to understand the Bible, and Christians always tell me, you need to read the Bible. And then they have all different names for people, and how are you supposed to know? And so if you're wondering, why would they give him multiple names? Um, this is my guess. The same reason that most of us in this room have multiple names. How hypocritical that we go, it's so confusing they have multiple names. Almost everyone in this room has three names, right? You've got a first name that you use with like the people that are closest to you. 
you've got a last name that you use for like on formal documents and um, when someone speaks to you in like a formal way, a lot of times they will say Mr. or Mrs. or Miss and then just your last name. Um, then a lot of you have a middle name that you hardly ever use at all, except for a few of you who go by your middle name instead of your first name. Hmm, eh, eh, thanks. And then, and then there are some of you that have a nickname that you go by that is neither your first, middle, nor last name. And then there are some of you that have a name that you go by that is a shortened version of your first name, right? So in this room, most everyone in this room has two, three, four names per person. Why? Well, we know why. This is just, this is common in our culture. Sometimes we use multiple names in order to differentiate John Smith from John White or whatever. And I bet you that's the same thing they were doing back then. I bet you when John Mark hung out with a bunch of Johns, he went by Mark. I bet you when he hung out with a bunch of Marks, he went by John. So what's common now was common then. And when I say it was common then, I mean it was very common then. It's really obvious in even, not even just the whole book of Acts. If you just look at just this story, just the 12 verses that I read to you earlier, there are three other characters that have two names each. Did you notice it? As we were going through, um, in the first verse, when it talks about the prophets and teachers of Antioch, it says that there's a guy named Simeon who was called Niger. Then the main character in this story is referred to as Saul, also called Paul. And then the villain of this story, who we haven't gotten to yet, is referred to in verse 6 as Bar-Jesus, and then kind of like almost inexplicably, um, in verse 8, he's given a different name. Not inexplicably, but just it's a different name, and they, don't, they, just, they call him Bar-Jesus, and then in verse 8, they call him Elamus. Why? Because his name was Bar-Jesus, his name was Elamus. There was a guy named Paul, his name was also Saul. There was a guy named John, his name was also Mark. There was a guy named Simeon, his name was also Niger. It was common then, um, yeah, it was common now, it's common then. So, John Mark, here we are. He's the assistant. So back to, let's go on to verse 6 now. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, I want to explain what happens in this next part, and there's, there's something I think really important that happens here that's really easy to miss. So geographically, it says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. So they've sailed, they've, well, they've probably walked from Antioch to Seleucia. Now they sailed to Salamis. Now, Paphos is on the other side of the island, right? So they're going from east to west, or they're traveling from right to left okay, going through the island to get to the other side of the island. Now, once they get to the other side of the island, something interesting happens. There's a word that I think probably most of us find interesting because they go, oh, sorcerer, that's exciting. But before we get to sorcerer, I want you to notice some boring words up here that are very important, okay? When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, we can't just jump straight to sorcerer because what that means is there was traveling that took place from here to here, which means there was time that took place from here to here, a whole bunch of time. And I think if we read this passage without reading it carefully, it's easy to just imagine they sailed to some island and they had some sort of like spiritual encounter with the sorcerer and then they moved on. You can almost, because verse 5 says that they arrived in Salamis and verse 6 says there was a sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, you can almost, if you're not reading carefully, you can almost think like the boat pulls up to the dock, er, they get off, they're on the dock and then there's a sorcerer there. And then all of a sudden like it all shoots down. That is not what happened at all. They got there, and then they traveled through the island. How long does it take to get from one side of Cyprus to the other? Okay, I looked it up on Google Maps. We're talking about 100 miles to 120 miles, depending on how far you go. And I realize modern-day roads are not the same as the way they traveled, but the distance is still roughly the same, okay? It's the same island. So going along the bottom, you could go in probably about 100 miles, but if you're going through the middle and going from town to town and climbing over mountains and stuff, maybe as much as 120 miles to get across there. Now, how did they travel? 
Well, let's think. They came on a boat, so they probably left all their horses and all their BMWs behind and just had to walk across this island. So how, far, how long does that take? Well, I'm thinking four miles an hour is regular walking speed. And if you're walking, let's say, eight hours a day, factoring in that you've got to stop to eat food and other stuff like that and pitch your tent and whatever, um, we're, ta- we're thinking it's going it's to be three or four days when they had gone through the whole island. No, it's three or four days. And, but here's the thing. It was more than three or four days. Three or four days is what it would have been if they had shown up for like an athletic competition where they were racing from one side of the island, I guess speed walking, from one side of the island to the other. In other words, the goal when they showed up was not to just get to the other side of the island. The goal in showing up was to tell the people about Jesus. So they didn't just get up every morning, go as far as they can, get up every morning, go as far as they can until they got to Paphos. No, they traveled from village to village telling people about Jesus. And when they showed up at these villages, where was the first place that they went? The synagogue. Oh, and that slows down the whole process as well. Because if I understand synagogue culture in the first century, and I think I do based on other things in the Bible, the synagogues only met one day a week on the Sabbath. They're similar to modern-day churches in that like modern-day churches typically have services one day a week, right? We come together on Sunday morning like this. I think it was very similar for them, that on the Sabbath, they would gather together, they would work all the other days of the week, and then they would show up on the day off, the Sabbath, the day of rest, and they would show up at the synagogue, and that's where they would read the scriptures out loud, and they would fellowship with one another, and there would be a rabbi that would teach them things, and someone would get up and exhort them, and they would sing songs or psalms or whatever they would all do, but that stuff all took place on Saturday. So imagine you show up at this island, and you proclaim in the synagogue, and then you walk all day for however many days till you get to the next city, and imagine you show up at the next city on a Tuesday. What do you got to do? You got to wait around till Saturday if your plan is to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. And then imagine it goes well and you get invited back a second time and you do two Sabbaths in a row, there's another week. And imagine you've said everything you need to say and now you travel to the next village. So you start walking and you walk for how many days? I don't know. And let's say the next village you show up and it's Thursday. Now what do you do? You sit around till Saturday and you proclaim Jesus in that synagogue. And when you start thinking this through, you realize that these eight words, when they had gone through the whole island, is a period of time that's multiple weeks. And maybe this was two or three months of, tra- of traveling around going to all these places. And so that's what I mean when I say they didn't just show up at this island and have to deal with the sorcerer. What they did is they showed up at this island, and probably what happened is ordinary ministry took place for weeks, for months. And then... At the end of a long trip, something extraordinary happened, and Luke tells the story of that thing. But I'm assuming the reason that Luke doesn't talk about all the stuff that happened in the middle is because probably what happened in the middle was very ordinary ministry. They went from place to place, and they told people about Jesus, and maybe some of the people said, yes, I believe, and some of the people said, no, I don't believe. And then they went to the next city, and they preached about Jesus, and some people said, I believe, and some people said, no, I don't believe. And it was ordinary life, and it went on for week after week after week, and then finally, at the end of the journey, something very extraordinary happened, and Luke chronicles what happens at that point. They show up in Paphos, and they come across a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, so who is this guy? I mean, that's a weird word, sorcerer, right? Did you even know that word was in the Bible? And you're like, I thought that was Lord of the Rings. Like, sorcerer? There's, that's a thing? Like, there existed sort like a, like, is that like a wizard from like a role-playing game? Like, what did this guy do? So this word that's translated sorcerer comes from a Greek word, 
and, and it's a Greek word that, at least in another form, you are already familiar with from another story. You actually understand a little bit about the word that this word sorcerer comes from in a, in a, a very famous, different Bible story. And it's the word magi. Anybody remember magi from Christmas time? Yeah, sometimes we call them the wise men. So you have your nativity scene, and you got the shepherds there, and then you got those three guys that are walking up, and you go, oh, they're the wise men. And some Bibles translate it, they're the, they're the magi. Okay, and I, and I don't know this, I don't know how to pronounce the singular of magi, so I'm not going to try. But anyway, but here's one, okay? So we got the multiple guys that show up at Christmas, but we got this guy here. It's a word that's sometimes translated like sorcerer or magician, but it's a word that I think it originated in like the kind of the false religions that were involved in Persia. And these would be people who probably were astrologers. They watched the stars at night and they were aware of the constellations and they probably believed like the stars are aligned in such a way that this is what's happening or this is what the gods are saying to us. So these would have been people that were probably like mystics, like spiritual leaders or prophets. And I mean that like in a bad way, like false prophets, false spiritual leaders of some other, some other religion. And sometimes they were advisors to rulers, hence the name wise men. That there would be people who were in charge of, you know, whatever, like their kings or princes or whatever they are, and they might have some of these magi who advise them, who say, ooh, the stars have aligned and this is what you ought to do. This is what I think the gods are saying. And so we have this guy here named Bar-Jesus, and then look at the next verse, verse 7. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. So Sergius Paulus is the proconsul. Anybody know what the proconsul is? Yeah, I didn't know either. I had to look it up. Okay, proconsul is, in the Roman Empire, a specific position. It was a, um, a Roman official, and the Roman official that was in charge of a particular territory. So Roman Empire was huge at this point. Obviously, you can't just have one person in charge of all of that. You're, you're going to have to break it down into smaller pieces and have people that are in charge of different territories. And that's what the proconsuls were. So Sergius Paulus is a Roman governor over a particular territory. What territory? Not hard to guess. Cyprus, all right? Like sometimes with the territory, it's hard to know where the borders are, but in this case, the island's surrounded by water. So it's very, very likely this guy is the proconsul of Cyprus. He is the governor of that island. And who was with him? Bar-Jesus, right? The sorcerer. That Bar-Jesus may have been one of his advisors, like one of his spiritual advisors. So what you have on this island now is this man, he's called an intelligent man, He's a proconsul. He is very likely the most important, the most influential, the most powerful man on this island. And it says, this man, referring to Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear God's message. Isn't that kind of crazy, the way that's phrased? It's not Barnabas and Saul. They didn't worm their way into his mansion or his palace or whatever it was and say, we want to explain the gospel to you. You don't want to hear it, but we want to tell you. He summoned them. He said, I want them to come and tell me what the gospel is. How did that happen? What could have caused that? Now, here's the thing. If we had not been reading carefully up to this point, we would probably think, well, some weird thing, miraculous thing must have happened, right? They just showed up at this island, and then like a day later, the governor said, preach the gospel to me out of nowhere. That'd be weird. But if we think about the whole story, it's not hard to figure out what happened. They showed up and started preaching the gospel all around that island, and caused a ruckus, didn't they? I mean, a good ruckus. They went around for weeks, maybe months, proclaiming Jesus from town to town, and that probably started a whole bunch of chatter. Like, there's this new message that showed up. These new messengers, these prophets came out of nowhere, and they told us about the true God and the true Messiah. And I'm sure there were people that were going, I think I believe it. I'm going to change my whole life now. And other people going, no, no, don't do that. These are just two people from out of town. 
And probably Jews started talking about it and Gentiles started talking about it. I bet you in some sense it was the chatter of the island. And then the governor of the island went, what is it these people are saying? We've heard there's this new message that just showed up on my island, Cyprus, right? I'm the governor here, and we hear there are these new prophets showing up with this new message. I want to hear what it is. You guys, I summon you. You come tell me this new message you're spreading all around my island. And I'm sure Saul and Barnabas said, we would love to tell you the message. So they showed up, and they did. Now look at this, verse 8. But Elamis the sorcerer, this is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's called by a different name here. He was Bar-Jesus earlier, now he's Elamis. You can kind of tell why he has two names. It says, Elamis the sorcerer, this is the meaning of his name. So Luke is connecting this word, Elamis, to the idea of sorcerer, that he has this name because of what he does. His other name is probably because of his family. His other name is Bar-Jesus. Bar is a word that means son of. Okay, so Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Which you might go like, oh, does that, like, is that connected to Jesus Christ dying on the cross? No, Jesus was a normal name back then. Okay, there was lots of Jesuses. Okay, like it's the, the word Yeshua, Joshua. It was a just, it was a common name. He, Jesus was not the only guy named Jesus. There's multiple people in the Bible named Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua. So this guy's Bar Jesus, meaning what? Meaning his dad's name was Joshua or Jesus. So, um, so he's got his family name. He's got his what he does for a living name, and he does what? He opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith, from the Christian faith. Well, how did that go down? I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know how this situation happened. Luke just sums it up in a sentence. I don't know if this took place over multiple days and this guy kept messing with them or if this was just one conversation where Saul and Barnabas are trying to present the gospel and he keeps butting in and saying, no, no, I object. I don't know. But all we know is we've got this guy named Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. He wants to hear the gospel. They're trying to share the gospel with him and perhaps his spiritual advisor is there saying, don't listen to them. Don't listen to what they say about God. Listen to what I say about God. Don't listen to what they say the truth is. I'm the one that knows the real spiritual truth. Don't listen to them. And so there's this like spiritual conflict going down, right? There's this, like, this religious battle sort of taking place right in front of Sergius Paulus. There's the new prophets that have come into town. There's his personal prophet or this prophet that lives on the island there. And they're saying, believe us. And then this guy's saying, don't believe them, right? So the, so the conflict begins. So then... Uh, verse 9. So then Saul, also called Paul, whoa, we're going to get to that in a little bit, but I don't want to lose the momentum of the story, so let's just keep going. Filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer. And filled with the Holy Spirit, I think is saying like the Holy Spirit was especially enabling him to do something special right at this moment, right? I mean, I think he had the Holy Spirit all the time, but this is a moment where the Holy Spirit was especially guiding him. So it must be okay to stare at people sometimes, okay? Because in this case, Holy Spirit fills him. He stares at this guy and he says, you son of the devil. That was not polite. You son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? He rebukes this guy. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. This guy's full of deceit and fraud. And then look what happens. Next verse, 11. Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. Like my God, the true God, is opposed to you because you are opposed to him, right? So as you oppose him, he is now opposed to you and this is not good. Look what's going to happen. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. So I assume this was a temporary blindness that struck him. 
And, and it sounds like he's just saying, at some point in the future, you will become blind. And it's like, ooh, when's that going to happen? Hmm. Suddenly, a mist and a darkness fell on him. So he prophesied it, and then it looks like just a little bit later, it, this went down. A mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now, I don't even know what to call this. Like, I don't know what word this should be called. In one sense, you could ask the question, like, is this a, like, is this a curse? Like, did, did Saul, when he said, you son of the devil, you, will, you are going to go blind, is, was he pronouncing a curse on this guy? Did, did Paul cause this guy to go blind, almost like casting a spell? I don't know. It sort of looks like that. But on the other hand, you would go, well, no, it doesn't say Saul made him go blind. He just says, you are going to be blind. Right? And then darkness fell on him, kind of implies maybe that God did it, and what Saul is doing is merely predicting it, right? He's just prophesying, you're going to go blind. But, so it's, prophesying, though, seems a little bit too weak, because I feel like prophesying is like, you know, there's going to be a famine next summer. Like, he said this is going to happen, and then it happened right then. And it happened right then after he said, you son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness. Right? That sounds like a curse. So this, whatever happens here, it seems to me it's something that's not quite as strong as a curse because it doesn't say Saul did it to him, but something that's a little stronger than just merely predicting the future, right? Because the timing was such that he rebukes the guy and then the guy goes blind right then. So whatever you want to call that. And to be honest, I don't know that it matters what it's called because if you're Sergius Paulus and you're watching this go down... You don't care. You're not sitting there going, now, was that a prediction or was that a curse? No, you're just going to notice there were two prophets that represented two different gods, two different worldviews, two different messages, right? Two different kinds of spiritual life. And one of them rebuked the other one, and then that one walked away holding somebody's hand. If you're Sergius Paulus, you're not wondering, what is this classified as? You're just going to look and go, I want to be on his team, right? <laughs> I want to, whoever he says God is, that's who I think God is. Whatever his message is, that's the truth I want to believe. I mean, that's what happened. Look at verse 12. It says it. It says, then the proconsul, seeing what happened, believed and was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. He saw this spiritual showdown happen between two prophets and he saw Paul won. And so that's where our story ends, but I want to go back to verse 9 and catch something that we rushed through because I didn't want to lose the, the momentum of the story. But something happens in Paul 9, verse 9, that's very interesting. Verse 9 says, Then Saul also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer. If you're someone who's been here for the past several weeks, or just someone that's whatever, cares about this, and you've thought to yourself, what's the story behind how this guy named Saul became Paul? Like, there must be some, like, grandiose thing that happened that this Saul guy becomes Paul because he's Saul, and then nobody calls him Saul anymore. All the Christians call him Paul. So what's the story behind that? I hate to disappoint you, but this is it. This is the story of how Saul becomes Paul. It's literally nowhere else in the Bible. This is the one place. He's Saul, and then Luke says, oh, he had another name, Paul, and then just goes on with the story. There is no fanfare. There is no story of God showing up and saying, I will now rename you Paul because you will become the great missionary. There is no reason given for why he went by the other name. He is presented here the same way John Mark was presented, right? John, also called Mark. Saul, also called Paul. Right? We never go like, when did John become Mark? What's the story behind that, right? We just go, that's a guy with two names. And that's how Luke presents this. He had two names. 
Now, we might go, that's crazy. How is that possible? Why do Christians think there's some like miraculous story that happened? And, and if this is true, why don't Christians use these two words interchangeably? Right? We, everybody calls him Paul. Nobody refers to him as Saul. If he had two names, why don't we use it interchangeably? And here's why. The reason why is, up to this point, Luke has not used these names interchangeably. Luke has called him Saul exclusively. Saul, 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 for five chapters. Then in this verse, he says, oh yeah, he had another name, Paul. And then after this kind of just in passing, doesn't make a big deal of it. After this verse, he is exclusively Paul forever. So there is a sense in which his name sort of changes from one to the other, at least in Luke's story, because he calls him only one name. You have this one transitional sentence, and then he's only the other name forever. Why is that? It looks like because that's what happened in his life. In other words, that he went by Saul in the early part of his life, and he went by Paul in the later part of his life. Why did he do that? No official reason is given, but it's not super hard to figure it out. Saul is a Jewish name. It's a Jewish-sounding name. It's, he's probably named after the King Saul of the Old Testament. Paul is a Roman name. In fact, the only other Roman in this whole story's name was, do you remember, Sergius Paulus. So we got a Roman name, and we got a Jewish name. He was Jewish when he was born, so that's how he got that name. He was a Roman citizen when he was born, so that's probably his Roman name. And so at this point, he's, the story starts calling him by the Roman name. There's a switch in his life from this name to this name, and it takes place at the beginning of his first missionary journey, in the middle of the story where the first Roman person comes to know Jesus, at least the first Roman person that we know by name, Sergius Paulus. I guess what I'm saying is... <laughs> If you had a friend named John, and John moved to Mexico to be a pastor, and once he got there, he started going by Juan, even if he didn't tell you anything, if you just noticed the name John and the name Juan and the timing of the switch, wouldn't you figure it out? You'd go, oh yeah, the guy's adapting to his culture. And this guy named Saul, this Jewish man named Saul, as he starts traveling deeper and deeper into Roman territory, in the story where the first Roman person comes to know Jesus, he starts going by his Roman name from that point on in the story. That's, that's it. All right, so here's our story. Summarizing what we learned today, this is the transitional story where Saul, Paul, not only does he go from Saul to Paul, but he goes from regular kind of pastor person to now traveling missionary throughout the Roman Empire. The story begins with Saul and Barnabas um, in Antioch doing what they normally do, right? They're ministering the Lord, they're fasting, they're doing whatever it is that they're doing, and God calls them to be missionaries, and he's called Saul at this point. In fact, we know his name's Saul. God calls him Saul at this point. Did you notice that? My friends go, no, I, think, I actually think he was Paul when he, when he became a Christian. The Holy Spirit calls, says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the, for the work that I have for them. So there they are, and they get called out, and so the, the church supports it and says, let's do this, and they sent them off. So they get on a boat, and they go to an island, and they go around that island probably for weeks, probably for a few months, talking about Jesus to anybody who would listen to them. And then there comes a spiritual conflict. There's someone who opposes them. And in the spiritual showdown, Paul rebukes him, and the other guy goes blind, which is very interesting. It was a temporary blindness, and it was something that Saul was familiar with. Do you remember that part of the story? Remember several weeks ago? Back when Saul was opposing God, God made him temporarily blind too. 
And I'm sure that it's no fun to be blind for three days, but I bet Saul looked back at those three days and went, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's when I came to know God. So who knows? Maybe he thought he was doing Bar-Jesus a favor, okay? This will hurt at first, but you'll like it later. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Bar-Jesus ended up coming to know, you know, the true, the true God or not, because the story just moves on without telling us what happened with him. But in the midst of that spiritual showdown, a Roman official, the most important guy on that island, becomes a follower of Jesus. That's the beginning. That's Luke's version of the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. And so what I want to do is I want to just end this sermon now. That's our, that's our passage. I just want to end the sermon now with three quick lessons, okay? Three lessons from the story to apply to our life. And the first one is pretty simple. It's called um, ministering to the Lord. And this is just a phrase that jumped out to me from this passage. And so I wanted to, I wanted to point it out to you. Maybe there are some of you here that don't even need to hear this, but I, I feel like I, I needed to, to focus on this. When I read this passage, I was like, oh, that's an interesting phrase. I don't ever talk like that. Look at verse two. This is, where I, this is where I get it from. As I was reading through the passage, it says, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now, I don't know who the they is because the verse before this has two sets of nouns in it, okay? It's the church at Antioch had prophets and teachers. So I don't know if the they is the church at Antioch or if it's the prophets and teachers of Antioch, right? So I don't know. So there's some sort of gathering of either just the leaders or of the whole church. I'm not sure. But in that meeting, they were, and this is the thing that sticks out to me, they were ministering to the Lord. I just, I don't talk like that. If you were to ask me, Mario, who do you minister to? I think I would usually answer that question, you all. If you were to ask me, who do the people of Good News Church minister to? I think I would typically say, each other, or the people of Marion County. And that's not untrue. We don't need to stop talking like that. That's true. But it's important to remember that we don't live primarily to please and to serve each other. We live primarily to please and to serve Him. Yes, we minister to each other, but the reason we minister to each other is because more important than that is that we minister to the Lord. Yeah, we serve each other, but we serve each other because we serve Him. Church ministry isn't only about the horizontal, it's about the vertical, right? It's not that just God has caused us to, to, that there's a certain way we need to relate to each other. There's a certain way that we're supposed to relate to Him. Church ministry is not just about community, it is about worship. The way we live our lives, the way we interact with one another, and when we gather, it's not just community, it's worship that we've been called to. All right, second quick lesson is that God calls people to be missionaries. And this is just a real obvious one. I bet everybody that preaches this passage always throws this in there because it's just so obvious. This is what the passage is about, right? The Holy Spirit calls out Saul and Barnabas to missionary work. It says, um, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to, right? Now, it, it specifies Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit did not say, the whole church of Antioch, I want all of you to go, right? It doesn't say set apart everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't even say set apart all of the people who really, really love me a lot and are willing to be missionaries, right? The people who are like, because there's like regular Christians that are like barely in, and then there's like real ticket serious Christians, and, and I call all the ticket serious Christians to go to Cyprus. That's not what it says. Barnabas and Saul have been called to the work I've called them to. Okay, 
So does that mean the other Christians in Antioch were not called to serve God? No, it can't, that can't be right because they already were serving God. The people in Antioch already were. First of all, the context here, like when the Holy Spirit shows up, he doesn't just show up while they're like reading a mystery novel. They were ministering to the Lord and fasting when it happened. The other people other than Barnabas and Saul, some other people there were already serving God. And the, the, this church in Antioch, if you remember from a few weeks ago, this church existed because Jewish people went to Antioch and started telling the gospel to Gentiles. Do you remember that? Like Jewish people showed up and started talking to the Gentiles about Jesus and the Gentiles said, I believe, I believe. And then there was this whole church in Antioch. The reason that there's even like a meeting here, the reason there's even a church in Antioch is because Jewish Christians were already missionaries. They were already evangelizing the Gentiles. So maybe it's better to say it this way. We, probably, we should not probably say God calls some people to be missionaries. It's probably better to say it this way. God calls everybody to be a missionary. And God just calls some of us to go and some of us to stay. God calls everybody to be a missionary. He wants everybody to, 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 be, to be on his mission and do what he's called them to do and do the work that he has for them and tell people about Jesus. But he calls some people to travel and go do that. That there are some places where the people there don't know about Jesus. And then there's places over here, and there's a whole bunch of people that know about Jesus. Some of the people that are over in the bunch of people that all know about Jesus need to go over to this place where hardly anybody knows about Jesus, and they need to be the ones that tell them. Some people need to go, and some people need to stay, but everybody's got to be a missionary. And then number three, third quick lesson, is that God's mission is a clash of good versus evil. God's mission for us on this earth is a clash of good versus evil. And that truth is real obvious in this story because there's two prophets that have a showdown, right? And one walks away blind. And so you can kind of see like this battle for good and evil and the, the battle for the proconsul's like soul being fought out between these two spiritual leaders. But even if it's obvious in the story, that doesn't mean like, or I guess I'm saying it's obvious in the story, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen in all the places where it's not obvious. Like God's mission is a clash of good versus evil even when you don't have two prophets battling it out. God's mission is a clash of good and evil when we just regularly do what God calls us, calls us to do. And you might say, wait, how do you, so you, how, how do you know that, Mario? How do you know that God's mission is not a clash of good and evil only when sorcerers are getting struck blind? How do you know that it's like just regular Christian life stuff? This is, this is how I know. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, and I'm going to read this to you, but before I do, I just want to remind you who this was written to. Okay, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to regular Christians. The book of Ephesians was not written by Paul to like an elite group of Christians that like, hey, I'm one of the people that like fights with sorcerers and occasionally causes them to go blind and I'm writing to you other elite missionaries who battle it out with sorcerers so that you know how to live your lives. That is not what the book of Ephesians is. Paul's just writing to regular Christians and this is what he says to them. Put on the full armor of God. He's not talking to special people going, you're the special ones that battle for Jesus. No, he's saying, regular Christians, every single one of you, put on the full armor of God. Armor? What am I putting on armor for? <laughs> you know. You know what armor's for. You don't put on armor to take a nap. 
You put on armor to fight. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle, there's the word, that's the thing we're in. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. I want you to notice, he says, our battle, not the special people who battle, but like the, the regular Christians he's writing to in Ephesians, our battle, as we, live, as we serve God, as we live our life, is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. And so I think it's fair to say that God's mission is always a clash of good versus evil, even when it doesn't involve multiple prophets and blindness and supernatural occurrences. It doesn't always go down that way. It didn't always go down that way for Paul. It's not like every time Paul went to a city, there was a thing with a sorcerer and a blindness. This was the one time it happened that I can think of. There are lots of times Paul showed up and just did normal ministry. And that's how our lives are a lot of times. And I'm telling you, Ephesians makes it sound like the normal Christian life is a battle mission. So of course sometimes it's hard. Have you ever been living your life and you think, I'm trying to do the right thing, but it's just so difficult? Why is God letting this be so difficult? Have you ever been living your life and you've thought to yourself, I'm trying to do God's will. Like, I think I know what God's called me to do with my life and I'm trying to do what he's called me to do. And it's so hard. Why is it so hard? And I just think this is such a good reminder. Well, yeah, it's hard because we're in a war, not a cruise. The war won't go on forever. That's where we are for now. And that's good to remember. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I just pray that you would apply it to our lives. I pray for some of us that we would live our lives like realizing, like, I, I am in the middle of a battle. It, it doesn't feel like luxurious and vacation-like all the time. And I pray that we would not like charge you with wrongdoing and going, well, why are things difficult? I pray that we would look at you and go, oh, okay, because you're the general and we're putting on armor because this is the situation for now. And there will be a day when evil is fully conquered and there will be no more fighting the spiritual forces of darkness. But for now, I pray you'd help us to realize that we are in the middle of a battle and act accordingly. I pray that you'd help us as far as being missionaries go. If there are people in this room that are called to go somewhere else, I pray that they would obey what you've called them to do and go. And I pray that if there are people who you have not called to go somewhere else, that they would not go, well, good, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just live a normal American life. No. And we need to, make, we need to be missionaries here. And I just pray you'd make us into those missionaries here. And I pray that as a church, you would help us to be a, a, an assembly of people who minister to you. Yes, that we would minister to one another. But I just pray that we would serve and please you as separate individuals as we live our lives and even when we come together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.